everyone and happy Christmas. I'm Jenny Wheeler, the host of The Joys of Binge Reading, and this is our last episode for 2020. We're going to try and do something a little bit different this year. As we did last year, we're taking a break in January to refresh and renew ourselves. And as many of you know, I'm in New Zealand, and as a country, we pretty much shut down post-Christmas and head for the beaches and the forest, which we call bush, It's like a whole nation goes on holiday together. I'm going to be spending time relaxing in my little Sprite Major Caravan. Yes, that's one of the ones with the cute rounded windows in a field with fantastic views over the Coromandel Coast. Now and then going down the hill for swims in the gorgeous seawaters that it's like swimming in champagne, I say to myself every time I go in. Before I pack up for the year though, I wanted to round things out by first thanking you all for sticking with us this year. The joys of binge reading has really grown this year. It's lovely to see. And we're getting lots of fantastic authors on to talk about their work, and I promise there's going to be more of those next year. We've already got a couple of interviews recorded, which I'm really excited about playing in February. For this end-of-year episode, I thought I'd take a look back over the year, look at the shows that have attracted the biggest audience and the people that for whatever reason, maybe it's just because they've got a really good social media following, but for whatever reason you tuned into over the last 12 months. The difference in numbers listening to these guests compared with many of the others is not large. And I do get great pleasure out of every single author I talk to. So I don't kind of like singling out some ahead of others. But these are the ones who've made the top, who would make the top 10 if we were doing one. And these are the ones that you've chosen as the ones you want to listen to. I was thrilled to see that where the author came from seems to make no difference at all in popularity. The spread of author nationalities between the US, Australia, UK and New Zealand is pretty evenly shared. So you're a pleasingly global bunch. Instead of just having one voice on the show today then, you'll be hearing from a dozen or more people that we've recorded earlier in the year. And as usual, if any of these snippets spark your interest and there's a show that you've missed out on that you'd like to hear, there are links in the show notes on the blog post to make sure that you can find it easily. Just go to the show notes for this episode on the Joys of Binge Reading website. That's joysthejoysofbingereading.com or you can find us on the Binge Reading Facebook page. I've taken the dates for this selection from December 1st, 2019 to December 1st, 2020. Pretty obviously because December 2020 isn't over yet. We've still got some posts that are just going out. I'm proud of the fact that we've now got 150 episodes on the joys of binge reading, and I think every one of those authors is fantastic. It's really rewarding to dig around there and have a look at some of the back files. But taking this last 12-month period, there was one author who stood head and shoulders above the rest in terms of the number of people who tuned in to listen to him, and that was Martin Walker author of the much-loved Bruno, the Police Chief mystery series set in Perigord, France. 
Before he turned his hand to writing French mysteries, Martin was had a formidable career as a diplomatic correspondent for top UK papers. He had some highly entertaining stories about his days working as a correspondent in Thatcher's England, Gorbachev's Moscow, and Bill Clinton's Washington. But you'll have to tune into his episode to hear those. So what was it that made him chuck in such a fascinating, glamorous career to turn to fiction writing? Well, he explains it all here. Um, well, when, uh, when we were based in, uh, in, in, in Brussels, my wife decided that we'd be foreign correspondents all of our lives and our children needed a place to be rooted. And uh, she decided we should get, our house, get ourselves a place in the Perigord, which we visited from time to time where we had some friends who lived. And I became increasingly uh, fascinated by, by the Perigord and particularly by the prehistory, the prehistoric caves uh, like Lascaux. And I remember the shock when I, I first saw it and thought, my God, these people were in no sense primitive. We, we've been quite wrong about this. I mean, their artistic sensibility was like our own. And so I, I began researching, interviewing archaeologists and reading books and visiting all the caves. And I wrote my novel, The Caves of Perigord, which is still in print, I'm about to say, which is really about what kind of human society could have produced Lasco. You'll understand from that Bruno is a contemporary police chief, but you'll also get heaps of fascinating history in every one of the Bruno books. The Perigord region is steeped in it. You'll get lots of food too. Martin and his wife have written a best-selling recipe book. But what is Bruno's special charm? He's no James Bond he-man, this police chief. Is it because he shows his vulnerabilities that readers like him so much? Here's Martin talking about Bruno's appeal. I, th I think that that might be part of it. I, th I think look, I think the first thing is that we all of us have this sense that that our police ought to be our neighbours. We ought to be able to trust them, to like them, and in fact, increasingly these days, particularly in the US, where police are armed, that's less and less the case. And given the kind of social problems that that are being thrown up, that the police have to handle, but we. But we, I think we all of us have an ideal cop, someone who will be, who is honorable, decent, brave, realizes that in a sense his work is as much a uh, social worker as being, a, as being any kind of agent of state repression. Um, and so I had this, this idealistic image of, of what a policeman could be from what I'd seen of, of my friend in France. At 40, he's the most eligible bachelor in the village. What happens when Martin finally marries him off? He's thought about that too. Well, my, my wife, whose views I always take with great seriousness, says that the moment I marry Bruno off, I lose half my readers. Um, so <laughs> I have to bear that. I have to bear that in mind. Um, and uh, he hasn't found the right woman yet. I mean, he... Um, I mean, he's... he's and it's really, he hasn't told me yet. The thing is, Bruno has become a hugely realistic person in my head, as has the whole of Saint-Denis. I mean, I, uh, uh, the, the people who live there and, and so on, I mean, they're as real to me as are my real neighbors. And um, I remember once when I was writing, uh, one of the books I was writing uh, was called... Um, 
the Devil's Cave, and in that I had a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a dangerously attractive woman uh, who was really quite a, a bad, quite a baddie, and she uh, was determined to seduce Bruno for her own for her own purposes. And in my plan for the book, I mean, I thought, well, of course, Bruno is just a guy; he will fall for her for her subtle, seductive ways. But as I was trying to write this chapter, it was like a force field came out of the came out of my desk at me, saying, "I am not going to drop my trousers for this woman." And um, it was like he had a mind of his own. This 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 character in my head, and so I am waiting for him to tell me what he's going to do next, really. And if he was doing it all over again, what, if anything, would he change? Well, I'd endeavour to meet my wife earlier and to have been married to her for longer, I guess. Um, I, other than that, no, not really. I just think that, like so many people of, of, of my generation who were born in World War II, we had this sort of extraordinary era of growth and of public free education and in Britain free care. I mean, you know, you... you I was just so lucky in all of that, and then in my career, being in Moscow for you know for the end of the Cold War, and then Washington, and I am just so lucky in all the things I've been through, seen, and I, I think if I have to put anything on my gravestone, it'll be he didn't miss much. Isn't that a wonderful tribute? A clutch of other mystery authors are not far behind Martin in listenership. And the settings and approaches that they took to their mysteries show our listeners are very happy with variety. Popular mystery episodes included S.W. Hubbard's Twisty Edgy's Mysteries, set in the Adirondacks and the world of estate sales, Chuck Greaves' irresistible likeable rogue hero in the Jack McTaggart series, Dwight Holing's contemporary restins with the tortured ex-soldier Nick Drake, and Anne Hilleman's Navajo mysteries, carried on from her father, Tony Hilleman, after his death. So let's take a look at these mystery writers. Chuck Greaves is a former LA lawyer who writes literary historical fiction, as well as his sharp contemporary mysteries like the Jack McTaggart series. One reviewer described Jack this way. Take John D. McDonald's Travis McGee, Jonathan Kellerman's Alex Delaware, and the best of John Grisham's protagonists, Shake and Serve, and you'll have the hero of Hush Money. Hush Money, that's book one in the McTaggart series. And here's Chuck talking about Jack. So Jack is a a lovely character. He's irrepressible. He's sort of a bit roguish and rough around the edges. It might scorn the legal formalities a bit, but he's kind of got a heart of gold. I had the feeling when I was reading it, it's almost like a wish fulfillment thing that you wished that law would enable guys like Jack to make a living, but perhaps it doesn't. Is there any sort of truth in that suspicion? (laughs) Well, you know, I I think the Jack McTaggart character is probably my fantasy self, you know, except that Jack... Except Jack is smarter than me, funnier than me, and better looking than me. But other than that, uh, <laughs> th- 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 there's a bit of me in there for sure. As he explains in this next clip, real life intrudes into his stories more often than you might think, especially if you've had a stellar career with very interesting people in the legal scene in L.A. I think I have seen um, reference to a particular case with the um, the wine story, the nap of family wine company, you did have a case yourself that 
was relevant to that plot line, didn't you? Uh, sort of. At the beginning of that book, there's, there's a story. It's not the main story in the book, but it's sort of Jack's entry into the, uh, into the case. And it's a case in which uh, a wealthy person dies and leaves behind two wives, okay? Yeah. And um, in the book, one of those wives, you know, the person who dies is a film executive and he, uh, you know, a media mogul, and he leaves behind a wife and a mistress, both of whom claim to be the wife. And the mistress sues the wife for half of, uh, half of the decedent's estate. And that's how Jack gets into uh, the whole Napa Valley scene. I had a, a, a case just like that. I had a, a prominent citizen uh, client who passed away and left behind two wives. And uh, that was quite an interesting case. And I thought that would be a, a fun way to sort of kick the book off. So, yes, I have used actual um, cases from my practice not too often and never as the main storyline, but I've used them. I had a very interesting uh law practice. I represented uh, some interesting people, including for 10 years, I represented uh, Richard Pryor, the comedian. And oh. uh, we did a lot of fun stuff together. And um, yeah, there's a lot of grist for the mill there. Dwight Holing's modern Miss Westerns with Nick Drake are deep, painful and soul-searching. They raise issues about the way our society is treating returning soldiers from modern wars. As I commented to Dwight in this podcast chat, he's escaping PSTD by being a wildlife ranger in Oregon. It's a setup that gives you tremendous scope for both high action as well as some telling personal and social commentary. Tell us how Nick came about as a character. Well, Nick Drake is really an embodiment of people I know and love, both family, friends, and people I met while traveling or writing nonfiction, both people living and dead. Um, I grew up in the late 60s, too, and we all know people like Nick. We all see parts of them in ourselves, people who have experienced great heights, fallen to great depths, people who have loved and lost and learned to love again, uh, people who have a moral code that helps guide them when facing good and evil. In, in Nick's case, He's a decorated soldier in a war without rules. He, he blames himself for the death of all the men in his squad. And their deaths led him to become an addict, where he wound up being held at Walter Reed Hospital for treatment of what is now called PTSD. Uh, wasn't called that back then, but someone saw the inherent good in him and threw him a lifeline. And paying that forward allows him to help others and in doing so, reclaim the humanity lost in war. Dwight is an experienced magazine and nonfiction writer but he finds himself writing fiction at a pace with four books out in the Nick Drake series in a short time. As he says, the books almost run away with him. There's a few reasons for this breakneck pace. And one is the characters themselves. Uh, they're speaking to me really loud and clear right now. And as soon as one story's finished, the characters are telling me about the next. The second reason are my readers. They read a lot faster than I can write. And boy, they're not shy about telling me that via email, pay, Facebook posts. I mean, even in reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, they're saying, hey, we're, we're ready for the next. Uh, the third reason is I love doing this. I love writing. I love connecting with readers and hearing what they think. I love the online community I'm part of. Uh, it's a big international community of other writers, 
bloggers like you, editors, photographers, uh, cover designers, and of course, readers. Um, momentum is an important component in each of the Nick Drake novels, and, and I'm striving to mimic that in my writing habits as well. And he tells a great story about the romantic idea of writers that he consumed from his grandfather. Yes, well, my mother's father, my grandfather, who I'm named after, his name was Dwight Mitchell Wiley. And he was a short story writer back in the 30s and 40s. He wrote for the Saturday Evening Post and McCall's and and periodicals like that. His stories, his genre was light, romantic, humorous pieces. uh, And he was good at it. I mean, they're just great stories for the time. Uh, one day the uh, call from Hollywood came and, and he was hired to write a, a screenplay and he became part of the Paramount Scribes. And among them also was Raymond Chandler, the great detective writer, uh, Philip Marlowe's creator. And they would hang around and together. And my mother tells the story of them in their bungalow waking up in the morning and there was Raymond Chandler asleep on the couch still wearing the white gloves he 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 liked to wear when he played poker and drank gin and uh, it was just this fabulous story and that always stuck with me about this romantic idea of the writers you know living in in Hollywood and writing screenplays and writing for magazines or writing novels no doubt it had an influence on me and uh Whether I inherited the talent from my grandfather or not, I don't know, but uh, uh, it makes for good memories, that's for sure. Anne Hilleman has done something extraordinary in taking over the hugely popular Navajo mystery series from her father, Tony Hilleman, after his death. Her dad was, as the New York Times noted in his obituary, quotes, a rare figure, a best-selling author who was adored by his fans admired by his fellow authors, and respected by critics. What a legacy to follow in. She's now five books into her part of the work, all of them New York Times bestsellers in their own right. Anne explains where it all started. Uh, Well, my father started the uh, mystery series that people have have loved for a long time uh, 50 years ago. It was, he came up with the character of Joe Lee Porn, Navajo detective. And in that first book, uh, really his, he hadn't intended to write a series about, about the, the Navajo Indians. He had always loved mysteries. And so his idea was that he would bring in this interesting character and do a setting that people weren't, weren't familiar with and that that would give his books a little, a little something different. And so uh, The Blessing Way uh, came out in uh, March 11th of 1970, 20, 70, uh, 50 years ago. And I mean, it's amazing. So how did she get the idea to continue her father's legacy? My background was nonfiction. And so I had been working on a nonfiction book uh, about the places in the Navajo world that my father wrote about, places that he visited and loved. My husband and I, who's a, my husband's a professional photographer, he and I had spent, I guess, about two years traveling all through Navajo land, talking to people, taking photos. And so uh, 
I had, I was almost done with the book when my dad died. So uh, we finished, my husband and I finished the book and a year after my father's death, the book was published and my husband and I did a little book tour to libraries and bookstores and we're talking about the book. And every time I would do the talk, the first or second or maybe third question would be, so are there any more books in the series? Was there something that your father was working on that was at the publisher? Something another editor could finish? A, you know, a collection of short stories. And I would say, no, sorry. My dad really took care of business before he died. And then the, the person asking the question would say, Oh, I love those characters. I love those stories. Oh no, this is the worst news I've ever heard. And I heard that I heard that longing for those stories so many times. And at the same time, of course, I was dealing with my own grief at my father's death. And after a while, it dawned on me that just like those fans, besides the missing my father, I was thinking, and no, how can it be that there will be no more Jim Chi, Joe Leaphorn stories? I can't, you know, this just isn't right. So I, I had never written a novel, but I thought, well, I could give it a try. And the worst thing that happens is that I use a few, use up a few years of my life and then I get it out of my system. So I guess that was, those things were kind of the combination that, le that led me uh, think maybe I could continue the series. Others in the thriller genre who proved highly popular were thriller authors Michael Rowbotham and Ian Austin. Michael's heartstoppers include The Secret She Keeps, a stolen baby thriller made into a six-part TV series. Quite a few of you have probably seen it. And the Cyrus Haven series with Evie, the girl who has an unusual ability to tell when people are lying. And before you say, oh, that sounds a bit far-fetched, Michael explained to me that this is a real thing. Here's Michael. I mean, I've heard estimates there are about one in 500 people have an 80% ability to tell when someone's lying. Invariably, they are people that have spent decades working in the prison service or the police or child services or even school teachers. When if you're lied to every day, you get a pretty good antenna, you know, about when you're being lied to. They have about an 80% ability. I mean, normally, of course, we have a 50-50 shot is the average, you know, whether someone's lying. Evie Cormac's very young to have a, this sort of skill, but there is, there is, you know, it's not proven, but there is a growing body of, um, I say evidence, but people have begun to speculate that when a young person has this ability, it is sometimes because they have suffered such an abusive childhood that they have learned to pick up on the very, very fleeting micro-expressions to just to, to keep safe, you know, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, they don't know from one split second if someone is going to hug them or hit them and it becomes a means of survival to pick up on these sorts of tiny expressions to stay safe. You might find it hard to believe that Michael's intricately plotted seat of the edge of your seat stories surprise him as, they much, as much as they do you, the reader. He says he comes up with the seed of an idea and then he lets the story unfold. He's as surprised often with the twists and turns as you are. Here's him talking about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when we reach a point in the story when 
people are in great danger, then I, I'm not sleeping and I'm sitting there thinking, how on earth am I going to save them? I mean, what, how are they going to get out of this? You know, it's a very organic way of writing. It's a very exciting way of writing because I don't know what, when I come in from my writing room and I, you know, the office here, and I, I say to my wife, you would not believe what just happened. You know, <laughs> I'm genuinely excited. Whereas, you know, I know there are a lot of writers that plot the whole thing in advance and they know what's going to happen. They know what's coming. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, I like not knowing. I think it's incredibly exciting. But it's also like riding without a net. I mean, you fall and crash and burn and, you know, you yeah, throw away a lot of material, but, but it's, it's a fun ride. Not all of our top episodes were mysteries, however. Historical fiction, uplifting and emotional family stories, and romance, historical and rom-com modern, all found a place in the top line. World War II stories dominated the historical fiction, with Stephanie Barron's fictionalised study of Winston Churchill's mother, that Churchill woman, spy stories, female spy stories from Christine Wells, The Traitor's Girl and the Juliet Code, Natasha Lester's The Paris Secret, and Fiona Valpy's French novels, The Beekeeper's Promise, The Dressmaker's Gift and others, all drawing on true wartime experiences for their stories. Here's Stephanie Barron talking about the attraction of World War II and Winston's mother, Jenny Randolph Churchill. In The Paris Secret, Natasha Lester touches on the true story of Catherine Dior, sister of the famous fashion designer Christiane, who was tangled up in her spy ring story. Here's Natasha. I read about Catherine Dior in a book called Les Parisiennes by a, an historian called Anne Sebar, and it's a wonderful book about the role of French women during the Second World War, both those who worked with the resistance and those who collaborated with the Germans. Anne Sebar mentions Catherine Dior in that book two or three times, just in passing, but there was enough in there for me to glean that Catherine did work for the French resistance and that she was captured by the Nazis and deported to Ravensbrück and that she was one of the very lucky few who survived that dreadful experience at that concentration camp and that her work for the resistance had been so important that she was awarded a Légion d'honneur by the French and a Croix de Guerre and also the British awarded her as well because of her work with the resistance. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, she was so heroic. She risked her life, quite literally, for freedom and nobody has ever heard of her. And But we all know about Christian, her brother, who, you know, made beautiful dresses, whereas really, arguably, Catherine is probably the more heroic of the two Dior siblings. And so the moment I read about her in that book, I knew that I wanted to include her in a story somewhere down the track. And so that was probably in about maybe early 2017 that I read that and the I always, you know, like an idea to kind of fester in my mind for about six months before I begin seriously researching and writing. So the germ of the Paris secret was born from that. Melanie Benjamin too covered World War II in her Mistress of the Ritz, a startling tale of goings-on in the famous Paris Hotel during the Nazi occupation in the 1940s. 
But like several other of our high raters, Melanie also turned to movie history for another of her works, The Girl in the Picture, which examines the remarkable collaboration between Hollywood star Mary Pickford and screenwriter Frances Marion. Says Melanie... I, that's that was to me the oh my god the shame of this that this whole history about women in Hollywood had these I mean Frances Marion was the first woman to win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay yeah. and the first person ever to win two of them and she was the highest paid screenwriter of her time one of the most influential screenwriters in Hollywood history and no one's heard of her there are no awards named after her I I, I find it so frustrating that women. The women were just as responsible as the men were in inventing Hollywood and inventing the art of filmmaking. And yet it's the men we remember, Cecil B. DeMille and Louis B. Mayer, and we don't remember Francis. We don't remember Dorothy Arzner, and we don't remember um, Alice Guy Blachet and all these incredibly pioneering women. And I thought that's what was one one major reason why I wanted to write this book, because I really, really felt it's time we we remember these women. And Mary Pickford, we may know about certainly, you know, a name, maybe a face, but we probably don't remember that she was the first female head of a motion picture studio. And that these two women together had not just an amazing, what I I think is a truly, you know, empowering female friendship, but also a collaboration that resulted in the most popular movies of their time. A hundred years ago, two women were making the most popular movies in Hollywood. And, you know, that it just doesn't happen anymore. You know, and that I just thought, oh, this story needs to be told as well. Kate Alcott, too, took us inside the sparkle of the star system in Hollywood's golden days in her book, A Touch of Stardust, to reveal people like Clark Gable and Carol Lombard on the set of Gone with the Wind. Carol Lombard is the only Hollywood star Kate says that she truly fell in love with. She says of the bombshell actress, I think, well, I think I discovered her as I went along, but you know what I try to do? Uh, when with Carol Lombard, uh, Ingrid Bergman, or any of the major true-life characters, I do as much research and, and to give me a really strong sense of connection of what they actually truly said. So I use some of the things that they said in their words and weave it into the story. So that uh, that's been a part of of building and and when I saw some of the things Carol Lombard did, she was a real hoot, and I would have loved to put my feet up and have a talk with her. Yes, and she and she was exuberant about her love for Clark Gable. Uh, the uh, you know they obviously turbulent times. I think the marriages in Hollywood are under such intense scrutiny all the time. They deserve some sympathy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she um, she was just so alive. I really felt as if she became one of my favorite characters of any of my books. Popular Kiwi author Deborah Chalinor was a bit of an outlier here in the historic fiction section. She wasn't World War II. She wasn't Hollywood movies. 
but her top-ranking book, The Jacaranda Tree, highly popular in New Zealand and Australia, the story of an exotic dancer in the 1960s Sydney nightclub scene, different from everything else on the list, but still making the top 20. It wouldn't be a year of pandemic without some heart-wrenching emotional women's fiction. And Barbara Hannay and Nikki Pellegrino both made the top group with stories that make you want to laugh and cry. Here I am asking Barbara about her business of writing uplifting stories. Yes, you say on your website you've got a mission statement that as a romance writer, you want to give readers an uplifting, heart-wrenching fantasy while keeping it believable. And I wondered if you could explain to us a little bit how you managed to do that, keeping the fantasy element, but also making it believable. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll work on the emotional element first because I do think readers like to have their emotions engaged. Um, so I always try to make sure there's an, a situation that I know will be an emotional one, whether it involves... Uh, often it involves some kind of loss for one of the characters. They've lost their job or a broken relationship lost a loved one or there's been a serious mistake they've made in their past, something that will be very involving um, on, at an emotional level. Um, I try to make it believable by making sure my characters are well motivated so that whatever they do, you understand why they're doing it. Um, but I think for me the fantasy level probably come, well, comes from the... Um, you know, just being swept away by the whole romance of falling in love, but also the settings. Um, mm, I don't, mm. I don't go in for wealth and billionaires and all that sort of thing so much. My, the fantasies I create are more about um, going to a different place, a place that that might be different for the reader who might be busy in the city, hard at work, you know, traffic and all the rest of it. I. I I, I, I suppose I try to make my settings a bit like a faraway dream yes. space. <laughs> Nikki Pellegrino, another top-selling New Zealander, is known for her food, fun and romance formula set in Italy with lots of sunshine and laughter. But we were talking about her latest book, Tiny Pieces of Us, which is a story with a slightly darker side than her other books. Appropriate, maybe, as we recorded it just as the pandemic was hitting and Nikki was suffering a broken leg. So she had reasons to get philosophical about the writing of that book and what was going on around her. It was teaching her a few things about life. Here she tells us what they were. In a weird sort of way, I think I've learned the lesson that my character in Tiny Pieces of Us learns that you can't live a safe small life without any risks because the outside world is going to come in and change things for you. Yeah. So really, you might as well take those risks that you really want to take. And, you know, I'm risking failure, which you never really want to do. No one likes the idea of not being good at something. But you might as well do that because life is just going to come along and change stuff for you anyway. I never, ever, ever in my life expected something like the COVID lockdown to happen. I thought there might be wars. I thought that there might be disasters. But this was something that I never considered. So, so now I feel like, well, anything could happen. So we, 
I guess for me, it, I found level four very difficult, partly because of the broken leg and having, I've got elderly frail parents in the UK and I don't know when I'll be able to see them again or that, you know, that they're going to be okay because things in, in England are still very, very seriously wrong. And so to try and create some positives and take charge of my life and make some changes became really important to me because I feel like we're all being buffeted by these things we can't control and we all need a little bit of control in our lives. We've got two romances to round out this year's list. Lucinda Brandt's Georgian historical romance and Bronwyn Sell's contemporary rom-com Lovestruck, set in a tourist resort in the Whitsundays. Lucinda's been described as giving the golden age of romance a modern voice and her Roxton series is now up to eight books and growing. Here I ask her about the genesis for the series. The one that is on your website that's free for download is Midnight Marriage. That is based on real events. A secret midnight marriage establishes a dynasty. And I was fascinated by that as well. What were those real events that are at the back of that whole story? Well, I read Stella Tilliard's book, Aristocrats, which was based um, on the Lennox family, which is the first Duke of Richmond was the son of, was an illegitimate son of Charles II. And his son was married off to, I think, to settle his father, a gambling debt, and he was just brought into a room and this girl who I think she was 12 because that was the age of um, the consent that girls could marry, and they were married off there and then. Uh, the gambling debt was settled um, and she was sent back to the nursery and the boy was sent off on the grand tour. And I thought, well, here, here, this is a fantastic story. Um, then what happened, he returned from the Grand Tour, was at the theatre, saw a girl uh, across the theatre in a box and thought, oh, you know, she looks very nice. I, I want to be introduced to her. Um, can someone tell me her name? And someone said, well, actually, um, that's your wife. What an amazing story. I mean. So, like, truth is sort of stranger than fiction. <laughs> And to round it all out, Bronwyn Sal reminds us that the challenges writers face in a year of pandemic might involve things that you haven't thought of. We recorded this in April 2020, when New Zealand had just entered its first lockdown and COVID-19 was still a strange new thing to us all. Sadly, it isn't that way now. It's December and I know many of you are still suffering badly with it. Here's Bronwyn talking about the minor challenges it presents to a writer. So, yeah, my next novel is due out in February, but I don't know what the world's going to look like in February. And, of course, this is this is a tourist uh, company. I mean, you know, the, the, the island is a resort island. So um, what's that going to look like for them? I've got I've written the book already. It's with my editor at the moment, although it's got a few layers of editing to go through. Uh, but I have people flying in from America to go to this island and I have you know people flitting over the world interestingly uh the book does open with the um the characters in a bit of a dilemma because the tourism industry has is down or, or, or the, their own numbers are down and they're wondering how they can get more people to come so from that point of view it's probably quite brilliant but then what do I do with that um 
you know, do I get people pouring into the island again? Or, you know, and, and it's impossible to know that. We've only got a couple more months to find out what she decided in February 2021. Well, that's it for 2020 Joys of Binge Reading. I do hope you, everyone listening has a wonderful Christmas and a healthy and happy new year. We'll be back with our first episode on February 1, 2021. In the meantime, explore some of those fabulous authors we've talked about here and more than 100 others who are just as good, who didn't get a mention, who are sitting there in the backlists. And see you next year. Bye now. Bye.